Well, good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 21. I actually was going to say uh, first thing today, hey, we're going to wrap up our sermon series in the book of Revelation, but that's now not true. Because as we were looking at the wonderful, rich truths of Revelation 21 and 22, we said, we have got to slow down. This is just too good. This great ending to the book of Revelation. So today we're going to look at a bit of Revelation 21, and next Sunday we will finish up the series with uh, mostly in Revelation chapter 22. Have you noticed that the word narrative has been tossed around a lot lately? You know, that, that term, narrative, used to be kind of a dusty old word that literature majors mostly used. But nowadays you hear it bantered around all the time. We hear about political narratives, false narratives, competing narratives. Let me tell you, five minutes on Facebook and you will run headlong into competing narratives of all kinds, all right? Don't try it. We hear about ideological narratives, dominant narratives, the climate change narratives, progressive narratives, conservative narratives. We hear about challenging the narrative, changing the narrative, reclaiming the narrative, developing a counter-narrative, and so it goes on and on and on. So what is a narrative, and why is it so important? What's a narrative anyway, and why is it so important? Well, a narrative is basically a story. It's a series of historical or fictional events. However, the kind of narratives that I've just alluded to are a lot more than entertaining children's stories. These are stories that provide context, meaning, and direction for life and all the decisions, all the choices we have to make in life. They make sense out of life. We all live according to some narrative or narratives. As one literary uh, scholar put it, we humans are storytelling animals. And then he went on to say this, we use narrative to make sense of a chaotic and unpredictable world, to imbue events with moral significance, and to, divine, to define our own selves. <clears throat> Except for the fact of uh, uh, the, the bit about us being animals, all the rest is undeniably true. We, we do this. Our whole lives are shaped by some story. This is what Leslie Newbegin, who was a British missionary to India, missiologist and theologian philosopher put it, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part? So why am I, why am I talking about narrative this morning? Well, I'm, I'm talking about narrative because I believe that the Bible is God's divine narrative that he has revealed to us, the true story of life. As N.T. Wright, another a British theologian, put it, the whole point of Christianity is that it offers a story, which is the story of the whole world. It is public truth. And when he says that it's the story of the whole world, he means that it's a comprehensive story that touches every aspect of life. And when he says that it's public truth, he means that it's normative, which means it's true for everyone. Whether you understand it or believe it or follow it, it's true for everyone. It's normative. 
If that is true, that the biblical narrative, the story of the Bible, is God's divine narrative, his story, the one true story that touches every aspect of life, and that is true for everyone of all time, then we better pay attention to it, shouldn't we? Really close attention to it. And if we don't pay attention to it, we are going to get seduced and deceived into following other kinds of narratives. Please, please, please don't allow the news and the media outlets to be the source of the narrative that defines your life. This, God's word, is uh, the source of a true and authoritative narrative that gives meaning and context and direction to our lives as followers of Jesus. But that's actually not the reason why I'm talking about narrative today. The reason I'm talking about narrative is because in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, we get to the culmination, the end of this divine narrative, the one true story that is the meta-narrative, the overarching truth and reality of which our lives are a part. And it is a good ending. Endings are important. How many of you have ever read the last chapter first? I guess I'm the only one. <laughs> well, well, how many of you have, have rushed? At, oh, good, I'm not the only one. How many of you rushed ahead or maybe spent most of the night reading to get to the end because you needed to know the end? Okay, good. All right, all right. That's, then I'm not completely alone. Why? Because the end's important. You know, any good story is going to have a ton of conflict and tension and challenges and hardships. And the reason why every good story has those is because the real story, the true story, the divine narrative has all that. But, but we want to see it resolved, don't we? That's what pushes us forward in the story is to see it get resolved. And uh, when we know that it resolves well, it ends well, there's a happy ending, there's a good ending, it makes it possible to endure all the tension and the hardships and the difficulties and the challenges in the middle of the story. And that's why it's so important to know the end of the story. And God has given us the end of the story. And it is a wonderful end. It's a good end. And in giving us the very end of the story, he's also reminding us of what has been at the heart of the story the entire time. And so in Revelation 21, he's going to say something that is absolutely the heart of the story. It's always been at the heart of the story from the very beginning through the entire story to the end, there is one big heartbeat at the center of this story. So let's dive in. We're going to talk about the new heavens and the new earth, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Sometimes scripture talks about that kind of like a, a worn out garment. That gets, that gets rolled up and, and thrown away and replaced with a new one. And there was no longer any sea. Now, I've never liked that line because I like to go to the water, right? I like to go up to Lake Michigan. I like to go out to the East Coast. I, I enjoy that. But we have to remember that back in those times, the ancients saw the sea as this mysterious um, place where down in the deep were these uncontrollable, untamed, scary monsters and there was chaos, and it was fearful. 
and, uh, and, and demonic and the, the adversaries of God. We even saw uh, back a few chapters that a beast came out of the sea uh, to defy God and to lead people astray. And here we see there will be none of that, all of that stuff that you're afraid of. Uh, that was trying to deceive you and that you didn't understand and was, was an enemy, it is, it is not there anymore. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We, we sang those words just a few minutes ago. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Okay, this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Because it really gets to the heart of things. And when you get to the heart of things, what you discover is relationship and togetherness. All right, so this has been a hard year for all of us, but it's been... Uh, difficult for our family because, uh, you know, lost both my mom and my stepdad in the last couple of months. But there have been some really powerful, poignant moments in all of that. So one of the, the main one was just a few moments before mom's viewing over at Red Path Fruit. And Sterling, my stepdad, had had a stroke just a few weeks before, and we weren't sure if he was understanding even what was happening, that my mom had died. Well, uh, the family had gathered, and we uh, rolled Sterling into the room. He was in a wheelchair at that time, and we rolled him up to the casket, and he stood up, and he said, oh, oh. And we knew that it, it was sinking in there. He was understanding that his wife had died. And then he put his hands on her hands, and he spontaneously began to pray. And it was a beautiful prayer of praise to God for the togetherness that they had enjoyed for 25 years. And he thanked and praised God for that togetherness. And then he began to praise God for the togetherness that mom was now enjoying with God in heaven in all of its fullness. And then he began to praise God for the future hope of the togetherness that he would have with them, which in the meantime, he is now entered into. And, you know, in that moment, it was a holy, blessed moment. And all the things of life that seem so important to us and we pursue and we run after and we try to have and get or we're jealous of or we're envious, you know, all the adornments and accoutrements of life just seem to fade away. And I understood for a moment what it was about. <laughs> it's about togetherness. And this is what God's heart's desire is. It, it's just incredible to me. That the one true God, the all-powerful, almighty God who spoke the universe into existence wants to have relationship with us, to be with us, to be among his people so that, so that we can enter into the goodness of who he is for his glory and for our joy forever. That's what he wants. And that's what we read there. But before this is going to happen, before it can happen, this togetherness and in its fullness that God has in his mind for us, far greater than we can imagine, that we have to get beyond the curse. Uh, and, and so, but this is what's happening here. Uh, check out verse 4. I kind of need this verse right now. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain 
for the old order of things, that's everything that's happened because of Genesis 3 and sin and the fall and the corruption and distortion and marring of everything from our hearts to all of creation, the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Amen? Hit that reset button. All right? Renew, restore, recreate. Yes! Oh, big button in heaven. There we go. I can't wait to see that. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I mean, I, I I can't help but think that that when John is seeing the whatever the new heavens and the new earth, he's like, he forgot to write. Like, hey, you're supposed to be taking notes, dude. Write it down. It's true. All right. So uh, John's writing. Um, and he said to me, verse 6, it is done. Of course, Jesus on the cross said it is finished. And what was finished was the price for our redemption had been paid. Our, our souls redeemed it is finished but now he says it's done what what's done well all of creation has now been redeemed and paul talks about this. he says all creation is groaning under the weight of the fall and of the sin and uh, paul writes in romans 8 21 the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of god it's done the whole thing has now been redeemed. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God's the author of this divine narrative, and he knows the end from the beginning. It's his story, for his glory, and for our joy. And and he knows exactly what's going to happen. He always has. Now, What happens next is um, we get all this description of the New Jerusalem, which we'll go into next Sunday, but we get so fascinated and caught up with all those sparkly things that we maybe rush on too fast and miss the point. I want to slow down. I want to stop. I want to review. I want to soak and saturate in this wonderful truth that we have read. This is the major thread that runs through the entire biblical narrative, all the way from creation in Eden to recreation in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's an amazing truth. God wants you to belong to him. And how you belong to him is by accepting, allowing him to give himself to you. That's the goal of reconciled relationship. That's what God wants. He wants to be the God... uh, who created and redeemed and loves his people, and he wants his people to know and to love and to trust him. He he wants to enter into this unhindered, full, complete, whole relationship. But it's only going to happen after the old order of things have passed away, the curse is gone, and everything is renewed. Then uh, we enter into the fullness of what God has in store for us. And so I The new heavens and the new earth is not primarily about a place, although I'll bet it'll be great. It's about a relationship in all that it was meant to be. It's about about living in the presence of the glory of God 
and working and serving and worshiping and ruling in his presence in the light of his glory. And of course, there's no way to describe this. The words here in Revelation, they can't come close. There's, there's no way to get to the heart of it. It's just a wonderful, amazing truth that this is what God desires. And this is what he wants. And it's the thread through all of Scripture. So we're going to take a quick ride. You say, what is the biblical narrative? What's the biblical narrative? I'm going to give it to you in five minutes. All right? The biblical narrative... Uh, And here's the biblical narrative, but I'm going to follow the thread of these truths where God's heart's desire is to be the God of his people and for uh, for him to be their God and for them to be his people. And this, it goes even further. He wants to, he wants to dwell. I can only get so close. (laughs) He wants to dwell among them and be with them. So here we go. Buckle up. We're going to go fast through the entire Bible. It starts in Eden of course. And we read this in Genesis 3. Then the man and his wife, that's Adam and Eve, uh, heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we think this was a normal daily kind of thing, that God visited Adam and Eve. He was with them in the garden. They were to work the garden. They were to um, serve in the light of his uh, glory and presence. That was God's kind of plan. That was the setup. He created man and woman in his image in order that they would know him and be able to um, uh, serve and represent him on this earth as his vice regents in the light of his glory. But, of course, this verse, of course, uh, happens. They run away from him, right? Uh, Instead of running to him, they run away because they've sinned. And so Adam and Eve uh, sinned. They decided... To keep with the theme, we're going to write our own narrative, God. We want to write our own narrative. We're not submitting to your narrative. We're going to write our own narrative. We're going to make a name for ourselves. That's at the heart of sin, is we're going to write a counter-narrative to God's narrative. We don't want God's narrative. We don't trust God's narrative. We're going to to make our own narrative. And of course, that sent us off on an awful trajectory but God in his love didn't give up. He continued to pursue. And so he chose uh, one man and began to work with that man and his family to work towards restoring relationship. And so we have the Abrahamic covenant. And we read this in Genesis 17. God saying to Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God. And the God of your descendants after you, I will be their God. Okay, I'll be your God. You will be my people. It's about relationship, restoring relationship. And, um, of course, the family grew, eventually went down to Egypt. Uh, they, They exponentially multiplied in number, and yet they were oppressed, and they were enslaved. And God comes in powerfully to intervene with great miracles to redeem and rescue and deliver his people whom he loves and to call them to himself and to make them into his people a nation of people among whom he would dwell and live. And so we get the Mosaic Covenant, and we read things like this. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. Look at that. I I delivered them, I rescued them from Egypt, so that I could dwell among them and be with them. 
and guide them and lead them into life. In Leviticus, we read, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. And of course, the, the, the tabernacle first and then later the temple was all symbolic of God's heart's desire to dwell among his people. They represented his presence. And this was, part of, this was at the heart of the narrative, is God dwelling among his people, being their God, and they are his people living in relationship. Well, the Israelites mostly didn't follow this. They were rebellious and stubborn and stiff-necked and hard-hearted. And if we think we're better than them, so, uh, but God, again, doesn't give up on his heart's desire and continues to pursue them. And through the prophets, he promises a new covenant, a better covenant. And we read things like this in the prophets. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then he says, my dwelling place will be with them I will be their God and they will be my people. Over and over again, we see this theme. It's God's heart's desire. It's incredible, isn't it? Man, I just love it. This is reality. This is the basic fundamental truth. And it's repeated over and over in God's divine narrative. We read a little bit earlier, he said to the Israelites, I will walk among you. And we're like, how does that happen? What does that look like? Well, eventually it came very true in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at this. Um, we read this in John, oh, this is John 1, um, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word dwelling is uh, tabernacled. He tabernacled, he pitched his tent among us. The God who lives in infinite glory and greatness, he became human and he pitched his tent among us. You know, I'm not a big fan of camping. It's dirty, it's sweaty, it's mosquito-y, it's wet, it's yucky, all right? I know lots of you disagree with me, but the point is, God decided to go camping, if you will, among us. Wow. So he, why, why? Because he wants to dwell among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And of course, what Jesus did was to live the life you and I can't live and to the, and die the death you and I deserve so that through faith in him, we could be reconciled to God and enter into this everlasting life, the essence of which is restored, renewed, reconciled relationship with God forever. It's the heart of the story. Well, what about now? It still goes on. The theme continues. What about our age, the church age? We read this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? We're living out a foretaste, a first fruits of what we've just read in Revelation. God is present and he dwells among us through his Holy Spirit. And, and he's in relationship with us. He's present right now. We don't see him. We look forward to the day when our faith will be sight. And that's what we get in Revelation chapter 3. That's the next and last one. We're finally at the end of the story. Okay? Revelation. And uh, we read what we've already read. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be them with them and be their God. 
with an exultant, victorious cry. God says, it's been done. It's achieved. God gets what he wants. And believe it or not, I suggest you believe it. (laughs) What God wants is for you to have a reconciled, restored relationship with him and to know the glory and the goodness of who he is. Here's the deal. God is just too good to keep to himself. And he, he started this whole story, he started this whole narrative in order to demonstrate the greatness, the glory, the goodness of his unfailing love. That's what it's all about. And for those who receive that, who say, yes, I believe, that's who you are and that's what you're like, we are going to enter into the fullness of this in the new heavens and new earth to know completely, face to face, the glory and the goodness of God's unfailing love forever and ever. Of course, the cross The cross sealed it, and the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of it. But one day we'll see it in all of its fullness. I am looking forward to that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Wonderful stuff. So how can we overcome? Because it's the overcomers who enter into this. How can we overcome? And what does that have to do with God's narrative? How do we overcome? Well, let's read a little bit further in the chapter. We're in verse 6. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious, another way to translate that is those who overcome, the one who overcomes, will inherit all this. All this. Can you imagine what is contained in all this? I can't wait for that. All right? You inherit... Here's what you inherit. You inherit what Jesus deserves because of his obedience. And man is the Father going to bless him. And through faith, you are in Christ, co-heir with Christ, and therefore you inherit what Christ deserves because of his obedience. That is awesome. You inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Another way of saying this heart of the story. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So uh, those who overcome, those who are victorious, will inherit that. What does it mean to be victorious? And, And what's that got to do with the narrative I've been talking about? Well, you got to cling to God's story. You need to align your life to God's narrative. No matter how hard it is, no matter how challenging it becomes, no matter how painful, whatever happens, it will be worth it. We know it. It'll be worth it. Forgiveness of sin, restoration to relationship with God in the presence of the Holy Spirit, that's what we call salvation. It's a free gift of God's grace. It's a free gift of God's grace. But we need to make choices. We need to make choices. This is what John wrote in an earlier letter in 1 John. He said the following, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anything, anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. You, 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 can't, you can't 
uh, follow the world's narratives and expect to receive the result of God's narrative. Okay, the way we say that sometimes is you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? You have to make a choice. Which narratives are defining you? Believe me, you are being defined by a narrative. We all are. Sometimes it's subconscious. We're not aware of it. And part of what I want to challenge you to do is to become aware of what are the narratives that are defining me and directing my life that I'm following. And uh, do I know and understand and am I choosing to follow God's divine narrative? Because we see here where it leads to something wonderful and awesome and great. Remember earlier I said to you this literary scholar, um, he talked about the fact that narratives imbue events with moral significance. And this is so true because we are made in the image of God, we are moral beings, and we, all of us, all of us, desire to think of ourselves as good. Righteous is the big, long uh, Bible word for it. But we want to think of ourselves as good, as morally good. And lots of the narratives that you hear out in the world are very appealing and seductive because they, they, they offer a supposed path to help us feel like we're good. We're good. I lived in Europe for 10 years. It slowly dawned on me that environmentalism, I'm for environmentalism, but for some, environmentalism becomes a substitute religion. It says, I'm a good person. Why? Because I hug trees. Well, I'm, I'm all for trees. Okay, I love trees. Save the trees, save the forest. But hugging trees doesn't make you good. I could give you a lot more examples. But you can probably see them, even in our society, alternate ways to say, hey, I'm a good person. But the fact is that we're all in the same boat. None of us, on our own, is good in comparison to God. We have rebelled against God. We've, we've said, I want to I write my own narrative. I'm going to make myself moral and good and feel good about myself my way. And that separates us from God. And so, oh, how are we to be victorious and overcome? Well, part of it is submitting ourselves to God's narrative, to his story. We call it the gospel. It's in the Bible. There is only one source of living water. We just read about it, right? Hey, the thirsty, if you recognize that you're thirsty, yeah, I'm thirsty, I need to be made righteous. I'm not on my own. Then there's only one source it's the spring of the water of life. But that, that spring isn't, you know, we used to have a lot of springs in Winona Lake. Um, it's not a spring like that, okay? Jesus made very clear what the spring was. Uh, he said this in John 7, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within. We need to come to Jesus in faith and in Jesus find life. The lamb is at the very center of the story. Have you noticed how often the lamb is referred to in Revelation? The narrative highlights and glorifies the lamb. And we need to stop trying to write our own narratives and be careful that we're not falling into the deceitful, seductive, but false narratives of the world 
and say, I'm, I'm submitting to the narrative of God in his word, and it's centered on the person of Jesus Christ. That's how we overcome. You are being defined by one or more narratives. Have you considered which ones are influencing you, directing you, defining you? Choose wisely which narratives you are following because they have huge consequences. There's just one narrative which leads to the new heavens and the new earth. Just one. So be very wary of choosing the world's narratives. Don't choose a narrative because it's popular or easy. Back in the 80s, the biblical narrative was pretty easy to follow. It's not going to be easy to follow in the 2020s. Which narrative will define you? How are you going to align your life with that narrative? You need to evaluate which ones are defining you. You need to reject those that aren't true, and you need to embrace the one that's true. I'm going to have the band come back up here, and we're going to sing again a little bit of that song that focuses on Jesus. That third song we sang was really a song form of the biblical narrative. And so we want to um, sing it a little bit again. So stand with me. Let's focus our mind and hearts on the lamb who's at the center of this narrative. 